Turn in your bulletins with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is our Old Testament reading. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth its owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt, revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises, and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, nor mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land strangers devour in your presence. And it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as besieged, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of your God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of your rams and the fat of your fed beasts, and I delight not in the bull of bullocks or the lambs or goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, incense as an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me, I am weary to bear them. And ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil from your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver has become dross, thy wine mixed with water, thy princes are rebellious and the companion of thieves. Everyone loves gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither does doth cause of the widow come unto them. Therefore, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, 
I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thine tin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness and the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together and they shall forsake the Lord and they shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks which they have desired and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen for ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth and as a garden that hath garden that hath no water and the strong shall be as tow and the maker as of its spark and they shall both burn together and none shall quench them. Amen. And then our New Testament reading is Matthew 5, 13 through 26. Our sermon this morning will be uh, focused on verses 21 through 26. We'll read from verse 13 to give us the greater context. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men also to do or to do so, He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall to his brother say Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, or has something against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art on the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to judgment, and the judge deliver thee over to the officer, And thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid 
the uttermost farthing or penny. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Praise be to God for the reading and the hearing, the giving of his word on this glorious Sabbath day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, perhaps, is one of the most misunderstood or misrepresented sections of Jesus' teaching, uh, probably throughout the whole gospel, really. The world likes to use the Sermon on the Mount for many things that it was not intended to be used for. Now, if you don't believe me or if you haven't experienced this, just go Google, if you will, the passage before us, and you'll see many reasons given for why Jesus has done or is doing what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 5. And from the very outset, I just want to dispel you of this notion that Jesus is creating a law that is harder to uh, attain or rules that are harder to obey than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching. That is not the point of the passage at all. The point of the passage is not that Jesus has now made the law impossible to fulfill. Some would like to say, and it pushes us only to grace, as if the law has no place in the life of the Christian. Indeed, that is not what's happening here. What is happening here is Jesus, as the greater Moses, is seated before the people of God and he is restoring the law to his church. This is the same law that was given by Moses to the same church. We often don't think of our Bibles this way, but there is continuity from Genesis 3 all the way through to Revelation 20. The Lord is doing this work in a people. And we can say rightly and properly that the people gathered before Jesus at that time were the visible church. And we today are gathered before Jesus' word again. And Jesus is doing that same work again in our hearing through his word by recovering the law. Now, verse 20 does not mean that the, the bar for heaven was set by the scribes and Pharisees, right? Verse 20 says, Jesus says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees wasn't the benchmark for getting into heaven. No, what Jesus is saying is their so-called righteousness was woefully short of attaining what God required. That their so-called righteousness was really no righteousness at all. And in other words, we could say that what the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of that day of the church, were teaching the people... What they called law-keeping was really law-breaking. They were teaching the people to break the law of God, not to keep the law of God. And the reality is this. If we are to keep the law of God, as Jesus is showing us here, and I'll explain what that means as we go. I don't want to confuse categories here, but there is a sense in which we keep the law. And if we are to do that, we first must get real about sin. We must take sin seriously in order to obey the law of God properly. 
we have to get real about sin because sin stains everything we do. The Bible tells us if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. Right? So true law keeping then is done not through sinless perfection, but through confession, repentance, and restoration. See, the penalty for our sin, if you are a Christian sitting here today, if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the penalty for your sin has been paid. You are no more justified today than you were yesterday or than you will be tomorrow. But the doctrine of justification doesn't extend into our lives necessarily. It does through sanctification, but this is the point of the law. This use of the law that Jesus is showing us isn't talking about our justification. That is once and for all accomplished in Christ. But the reality is, is that our particular sins have consequences that we must work out in our lives. That is really what sanctification is. It's a process. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us working out holiness and working in righteousness. See, we are sanctified. We are being sanctified and we will be sanctified. Glorification is the ultimate form of sanctification where we will be able to sin no more, but we're not there yet. And since we're not there yet, we need to take seriously Jesus's commands. We need to take seriously Jesus's provisions and teaching on how to keep his commands. So, brothers and sisters, what's before you this morning is the law of God. It is impossible for man to keep in and of himself, but it is required of you to do. Jesus is calling us here to do something. See, being a member of the church is risky business. It really is. Because even the most sanctified among us still struggle with sin. As one of uh, my wise seminary professors once told us in a class, he said, summarizing James 4, where two or more sinners are gathered together, their conflict will abound. You put two sinners together, whether it be in a church or in a home, conflict will abound. Jesus' teaching here on anger is supremely practical. Jesus isn't trying to set a standard that we can't achieve and then walking away, leaving us hopeless. No, he's showing us one of the very root causes of conflict within the church, within the covenant community, and then by extension, within your home, within the state. Really, every aspect of any relational part of our lives Anger is a problem, and Jesus teaches us the solution. It's really unjust anger that's before us. And one of the things Jesus does here is he shows us what unjust anger makes us liable for. And if you, like me, want Grace Presbyterian Church, or your household, or your state, to be flourishing and healthy and growing then we will need to learn how to keep the Sixth Commandment according to the law of God. We will need to learn how to handle unjust 
or unrighteous anger. We will need to learn how to be blameless before the Father. Or, as Jesus says, we will need to learn how our, to make our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the purpose this morning, I want to show you that the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, as we read, is really kept through reconciliation. And that reconciliation is the means to bring peace and purity within the church, within your home, and if the Lord would will, within our state. Reconciliation is the way we keep the sixth commandment. And it is through reconciliation that we make our church and our homes, maybe in God's grace, the state, more peaceful and more pure. That's the aim of this passage before us this morning and what I hope that the Lord will teach us. But let's begin here in verse 21. If you have your Bible before you, uh, turn there. If you don't, it's about midway down through the reading in the bulletin. Jesus addresses the crowd before him. He says, you have heard that it was said of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Then he turns and says, but I, in verse 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he is recovering the sixth commandment from these false teachers. You've heard it said. You've literally in the Greek, we could, you've, you've heard it read to you, right? They would meet in the synagogue that, they would meet in the assemblies and the law of God would be read to them as it is read to us. And they would have been familiar with hearing the, the law of God read to them. And they knew the commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Jesus is saying, you've heard it, you know it. And, but you've heard it said to those of old, talking about the church in the wilderness, talking about the church uh, throughout the ages. It was addressed to them, and now you have heard it read to you. Now, why am I pointing that out? Because verse 22, this but here, Jesus is doing something remarkable. Jesus is claiming all of the authority to now speak to those people and speak to you and I as God. You have heard it said, or you have heard it read, but I say to you, Jesus is claiming all authority to speak the word of God, indeed, to be the word of God present to them. If you remember the story of Exodus, Moses comes down from the mountain and, and gives the, the law to the people of God written on stone tablets. Moses is saying to the people, thus saith the Lord. And he is delivering to them the law of God that he received on the top of the mountain. But Jesus here is seated on this mountain. And Jesus says, I say to you, this is the direct speech of God. Now, why am I putting weight on this? Well, we need to listen. We need to listen because Jesus is speaking to you, 
Jesus is speaking to you directly. Dear children, you little ones who are hearing my voice, what we're about to read and what we're about to explore is the very words of Jesus. These are the word of God. These words we have here, this teaching we have here is for us. But what is he doing? Is he remaking the law? Is he giving them a new law, a different law? No. Notice what he does. You shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Jesus isn't giving a new law. He's, as it were, picking up the original law, sort of this tattered, broken vessel that the scribes and the Pharisees had created. He's picking it up and he's restoring it and he's refilling it. Jesus is pointing out the internal aspect of the law. And this is really where sin always resides. Sin always resides within our heart. Sin is never merely external. It is always first internal. This is the same law that Moses gave them. When Moses said, thou shalt not murder, it wasn't excluding anger or hatred. It was including that. And, and they should have known. We read in Isaiah chapter 1. These people are coming before the Lord and sacrificing before the Lord, but their hearts were not right. And the Lord is saying, I'm wearied of this. Your hearts are not right before me. The law has always addressed sin all the way down to its root. And that root of sin is always internal. God always looks upon the heart. So Jesus begins to refill then, not replace, but refill the sixth commandment. What does he tell us? He says, if you are angry with your brother without cause, you are in danger of judgment. And if you say to your brother, Raka, you will be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus breaks this heart sin into two categories. Thoughts and words. The Pharisees were pretty good at teaching them how to avoid deeds. But Jesus takes it to the thought and to the word. I'm going to ask you, do you think of your sins this way? Do you think that you, have, you are obeying God by simply not doing the things that you ought not to do? Little children, Jesus is telling you not to be angry. What's your heart like or what's your thoughts like when your parents tell you to do something that you don't want to do? Now, we often get frustrated as parents with our little kids who don't listen to us, simply outwardly don't obey. Well, that is disobedience. But it's just as much disobedience for their thoughts to be against us. Adults, how about you when you go to work and your boss says, hey, I have this extra project that you want to do and you're, I want you to do. And you're just absolutely already slammed. And you're thinking, why in the world do we have a team of people if no one else can do the job but me? You just sit in your thoughts. 
the root of sin is always internal. And that root, if we don't address the root of the sin, it'll grow back. I heard a story once of a little boy who wanted to please his father so much. His father would go away on business for a long time and his dad tried to keep him a meticulously clean yard. And this little boy noticed dandelions growing up. And he went out one day before his father was due to come back. And he went out and picked all of the dandelions, all the heads of the dandelions up. And when his father came back, he said, Dad, I, I removed all the dandelions in the yard for you. Well, did he do anything? Really? Now, the only way to really get rid of a dandelion is you have to pull up the entire root. They have quite long roots. You can take the flower off of the dandelions and for a moment it looks like they're gone. But give it overnight, they'll be right back. Sin is like this in our lives. Some of us, like the child who's just angry and goes and does what they're supposed to do anyway, have learned how to control the flower of our sin pretty well. Some of us haven't. We're like the child who says no and thinks no. The problem is we're not there yet if we're merely controlling our actions. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you think in your heart, if you, if you, if you think in your heart that your brother, or if you're angry there, whether your brother knows it or not, you've sinned against him. But if that heart sin then gives root, the root gives Growth and it turns to a word. Notice in the middle of verse 22, raka. That literally means like empty or it's just an open insult. Now, Jesus is not saying that you've done this necessarily in front of uh, his brother. Uh, we could say toward his brother, really. It's this two here. And why am I pointing that out? Well, oftentimes we will talk bad about people behind their backs. And in our own sort of warped, twisted understanding of the way anger works, we say, well, I didn't say it to their face. But we all know how much so-and-so frustrates all of us, right? And we'll say empty insults about a brother or a sister behind their back. But we don't think we've sinned against them because, well, they didn't hear me say that. And everyone else agrees. Jesus moves it even further. If you say to your brother, now this is actually saying to them, if you yell at them, really, you fool, you are in danger of hellfire. When that sin gives root, takes root and gives uh, growth to words, right? Notice how close you are then to the action of murder. Very close. Now, we live in a time where character assassination is pretty much par for the course. We participate in this a lot. We need to be careful as Christians. But what's the way out? What's the way out of this, this sin pattern? Well, Jesus gives us reconciliation. That's verses 23 through 26. Reconciliation is for purity. Notice this in verse 23. Jesus says, if you remember when you're... You bring your gift to the altar if you're coming to sacrifice and there you remember that your brother has something against you. 
If you remember that you've sinned against one of your brothers, Jesus says it's more important for you to leave that offering and go and be reconciled so that you might come back and worship in purity. Reconciliation purifies us before God. It would be better for you to not offer the sacrifice and go and to be reconciled than it would be for you to offer the sacrifice to God. It would be better for you to leave worship, go and be reconciled, than it would be for you to offer vain and empty worship before God, knowing that you have unreconciled issues or a problem. Jesus just said something with your brother. Jesus is showing us how the covenant community ought to function. It should be a place of confession, repentance, and restoration. Our church ought not to be filled with a bunch of broken relationships. Our friendships ought not to be marked by strife and conflict. Are we going to sin against one another? Yes. What do we do? We go and we be reconciled. We go and we confess. Right? What do we do? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Have you ever thought of that? Why am I reconciling with this person? Well, the primary goal of all reconciliation must be the glory of God. If you're not going to another person to be reconciled with them, to bring God glory, you haven't thought through the ramification or the depth of the sin that you're in. You must first go to this person in your heart, in your mind, knowing I'm going to them, I'm confessing my sin against them, I'm going to seek reconciliation so that I might glorify God. Or that so my worship might be pure. But Christians, we also have to think about what does it look like to the people around us? We have this vertical aspect, yes, of glorifying God, but there's a horizontal reality at play as well. Because if we're at church, worshiping, blessing God, praising Him, and we live lives of broken, shambled relationships, all the people around us are going to know that we are truly hypocrites. You can't be a nasty person out in the world and come into this room and worship God and think that your sin is not noticed by God and is not noticed by men. There is nothing more dangerous to the reputation and the glory of Christ than a bunch of sinful, heathen, Monday through Saturday Christians who come to church every Lord's Day. Our lives have to be marked by reconciliation for the purity of our worship before God and before man and also before or within yourself. If you have anything that you know you need to reconcile with your brother, go and be reconciled. And that brings us to this final point. It's peace. Notice what he does here. Verse 25. Verse 25, he says, now this is a, a situation that Jesus is giving us even more pressure here, right? Because the situation, we have two people who are in conflict and, and they're going to the judge. Right? It's gotten to the end of what uh, many of us would probably give up and say, okay, well, this is over. This person's 
beyond uh, repair. This relationship is over. They're on their way to the judge. And Jesus says, go quickly, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. Seek peace. Well, how do we do that? We seek peace urgently or quickly. How do we reconcile with one another? Do it quickly. Do it quickly. This word quickly underneath in the, in the Greek's taxu, it's like taxonomy. It's like if your heart's beating really, really too fast, you have tachocardia, whatever my dad would know. Like your heart's going way too fast, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Go quickly. Have a sense of urgency. Go. Don't wait. It's important. It's urgent. Go now. How often in our lives do we think, well, I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll square up accounts with them later. I'll do it tomorrow. Ah, I'll see them someday. We're not assured tomorrow. But first, that's very presumptuous to say. But second, the longer you let that conflict or that anger fester, it only becomes worse. It only grows. It grows quickly. So we must go quickly to be reconciled. And notice here, verse 25, it's not only quick, but it's also ardent. While you are on the way, keep, keep pursuing reconciliation. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. But there are people in my life that I have hurt, that have hurt me. And I have done everything I possibly could do to reconcile with them. And they are refusing. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you this very practical question then. Have you truly done everything you needed to do? Or that you were able to do? You need to answer that question honestly. Have I really done everything that I'm able to do? Have I really pursued them along the way? Let's say you have. What do you do now? You wait. You pray. Now, what if that person's sitting in this room with you? What does this look like within the church? <laughs> Maybe uh, you have a Sam's Club membership. I was looking at some of those today, or not today, uh, the other day. Uh, they have two tiers of membership. One, you get some perks. The other, you get all the perks. Uh, church membership is not like a Sam's Club membership. It's not like a membership anywhere else. Every Christian, every member gets all the perks of the church. There's some perks, though, that I don't think people really understand. And one of them is church discipline. Church discipline is actually a perk of being a member of the church. It's a benefit. You're thinking, well, how can discipline be a benefit? That's a very negative word. It's a very negative thing. Well, if we were to go to Matthew 18, which we're not for the sake of time, I've already gone too long. We see there Jesus is also talking about reconciliation. He's talking about reconciliation with two brothers within the church where reconciliation is failing. Here's the thing. As Christians, we have to hold each other accountable to uh, living 
the sanctified life. If we know that we have sin against one another, it's not enough for us to not say anything. There's a very good case in which you can. You can overlook people's sins, and maybe we should. We should not be easily offended. But if that sin strikes at the very glory of Christ, then for the sake of Christ it must be addressed. If one of your brothers or sisters has sinned against you, or if you've sinned against them, the first thing you need to do is go to them individually. But if that brother and sister is refusing to confess and to repent and to be restored, then you need to take with you some witnesses. You take with you the elders. Now I'm going to expand that point. Maybe we're familiar enough with Matthew 18 to know where two or more are gathered, right? I'm going to expand this point a little bit and kind of plug here something that I also think that we forget that the church is... Uh, supposed to do in our lives. When we say we've tried to do everything with reconciliation, sometimes what we big glaring thing that we have left out is seeking wise counsel. Have you ever sought wise counsel to help restore a relationship that's broken? And I don't mean wise counsel as your friends at work or even well-meaning Christians in your life outside of the church. I'm saying wise counsel from those whom the Lord has given you to counsel you, the elders of your church. It's a sad reality. I've seen it far too often, and I haven't been in church that long. People leave the church because of broken relationships, but they never did anything about it through the process. They never really tried. Now, there's part of me that thinks, well, maybe people do that because they, they really don't love each other. Maybe. But what I'm more afraid of is maybe people do that because they really don't love Christ and keeping his commands. Dear Christian, if you are serious about living the life that Jesus has called us to in this passage, a reconciled life, if you are serious about maintaining your vow to uphold the peace and purity of the church, you will take reconciliation seriously. I'm going to apply this in our marriages. And as I do this, I confess to my wife that I have not done this well. So don't think I'm telling you this because I do it perfectly. Are you reconciling in your marriage? If you have a disagreement, do you go quickly? Do you confess? Do you repent? Do you restore to one another? Your little children are watching you. They know when mom and dad aren't reconciled. Your older children are watching you. They know when mom and dad aren't reconciled. Dear Christians, our households need to be a place where reconciliation is practiced daily. You children, when you fight with your brothers and your sisters, which you will do because we're sinners, do you reconcile? Or do you let that anger with your sibling grow in your heart? Parents, you need to help your children reconcile with one another. Take it seriously. Don't belittle the sin of our children. Don't belittle the sin in their hearts. Take it seriously. Teach them while they're in your home to reconcile with one another. Teach them how to confess and repent and restore between one another. Take it seriously. And within the church, dear congregation at Grace, 
You here in this room right now, you have all taken vows to one another. Take those vows seriously. Confess. Repent. Restore. Don't let your relationships get broken up because of unjust anger. If somebody has said something to you and you don't understand what they mean, ask them. If somebody has done something to you and you don't understand why they've done it and it's hurt you, tell them. Do not let this grow. Do not let conflict, anger grow. Do not break the sixth commandment with one another. Why? Verse 26, it comes with a great price. Verse 26 is a warning. What unresolved conflict, what unresolved, unreconciled anger does, you will pay to the very last penny. You will pay to the very last penny. There's no shortcut out of reconciliation. It must be done. It must be done ardently. It must be done urgently for the peace of the church. It must be done for the purity before God, man, and from, for the purity within. Because reconciliation maintains the peace and purity of the church. And I'll close with this. It's a good quote from J.C. Ryle talking of this passage. He says, it teaches us, Matthew 21 through 26, the exceeding need of Jesus Christ's blood to save us. What man or woman upon the earth can ever stand before such a God as this and plead, not guilty. Who is there that has ever grown to years of discretion and not broken the commandments thousands of times? There is none righteous, no, not one. Without a mighty mediator, we should, everyone, be condemned in judgment. Ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel. I'll read that again. Ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so, why so many people do not value the gospel. And they content themselves to a little Christianity with formality. They do not see the strictness and holiness of God in the Ten Commandments. And if they did, they would never rest until they were safe in Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, before you this morning is a table of reconciliation. This is the table of reconciliation before you. This gospel of reconciliation is proclaimed to you. Second Corinthians, Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us, to the apostles then, and by extension to the preachers of the word today, committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. This is what God says to you, seated in this room. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for you who are in Christ. That we, the church, might become the righteousness of God in him. That word is set before you this morning. 
It's been proclaimed to you this morning. Dear brothers and sisters, will you do this ministry of reconciliation? The Lord's Supper reminds us of the great price that was paid by Christ to bring peace to us with God and to purify us from our sins. Won't you walk in that great work of Christ this morning? Won't you practice, participate in this work of reconciliation in your lives? So I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, go and be reconciled with one another that you might return here to worship peace and purity. Amen. Only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, you are our great and kind God. Lord, you have commanded us in your word. You have implored us by Christ Jesus to obey you, to keep your commands. Lord, may we not take lightly that command to do. Lord, we ask that you would reconcile us. Lord, that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to perform that work that you have given us to do. And Lord, may we be Christians who are marked by hearts that are eager to confess, repent, and be restored. Lord, do that work in us through the great uh, saving blood of Christ Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 